taking a little break here from uh, Matthew. I just felt like we've had some kind of hard messages, some hard things that Jesus was saying, and I think that today I'd just like to look at God's Word and maybe just get a vision of who God is and be encouraged today by that. So Psalm 34 says this, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name forever. I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are towards the righteous, and his ears towards their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of all of them. He keeps all of his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Well, I, I think one of the best parts about having children is that when you have a child, you get to kind of relive the wonder of the ordinary. Things are exciting that, you know, maybe aren't really that exciting to adults. Like, I remember in August, I went with Paul to, my son Paul, three-year-old son Paul, to um, a football game, uh, to the last Bills practice. And he had an amazing time. And the highlight of the whole night was the police officer that was riding on a horse, followed by the stuffed animal they had at the team store, followed by the hot, hot dog at the concession stand. Things that are, you know, we just take for granted as adults, kids get really excited about. Another thing he gets excited about is dandelions. He always wants to pick dandelions for mama. Gets excited about bugs gets excited about snow. He says he can't wait for it to snow so he can eat the snow. I told him, be careful with that. Be careful. <laughs> yeah, no yellow snow. So, and the other day we go to McDonald's and, um, you know, we go in there and there's these little chairs that are, you know, about the size of this table here and they, the, the, or a little table, the table's about this size and there's chairs that have kind of a leopard print on them. And he was just like so excited about these chairs. He's like, these chairs are so cool. Can we sit here? And he did not want to leave these chairs and this little table. Kids get excited about things that adults don't necessarily get excited about. Unwrapping presents. It doesn't matter what's inside the present. It's just unwrapping them. I've actually thought about like maybe I should just wrap up Paul's old toys for his birthday and just have like a hundred of them there. It would, I mean, he'd love it, just unwrapping them. But of course, you know, as time goes on, you know, we kind of get a little bit used to things. We get a little cynical and the things that maybe as a child don't excite us, 
uh, that a child excite us, don't excite us anymore. And we kind of lose that kind of wonder that a child has. And I think that the same thing can happen spiritually as well. You know, as believers, you know, as we first come to know Christ, maybe, you know, it's really exciting and we're learning new things about him. And, you know, then we somehow face this time in our life where we get maybe a little bit cynical. Maybe we start to lose that wonder. And I would argue many people in the church today have lost that sense of wonder. Margaret Sangster Fippen wrote that in the mid-1950s, her father, the British minister W.E. Sangster, began to notice some uneasiness in his throat um, and some problems with his legs. And he went to the doctor, and they determined that he had this very degenerative disease, and it was going to come to a point where basically his entire body was going to atrophy to the point where he couldn't swallow or talk anymore, and then eventually he was going to die. But he was undeterred. He just put his... Uh, mind to doing ministry, and he wrote books, and he helped encourage people, and when people looked at on, on him with pity, he would just say, I'm only in the kindergarten of suffering. And, you know, he prayed to the Lord, he said, you know, I can't do the things that I used to do anymore, but I still want to serve you. And then it was Easter Sunday, a few weeks before he passed away, and he lost his voice completely. It got to a point where he could barely even write. He could kind of scribble and write, but that was about it. And on that Easter morning, just a few weeks before he died, he wrote this. He said, it's terrible to wake up on Easter morning and have no voice to shout, he is risen. But he says this, but it would be still more terrible to have a voice and not want to shout. I think that's the tragically the story of the American church. We have a voice, but we don't want to shout. Like we have more opportunities and more blessings and resources than anyone in the history of the world. And yet, for some reason, we don't have that wonder. We don't have that awe of who God is. And so my goal, my prayer today is not that we would necessarily learn anything new from God's word, not even that we'd be encouraged or even inspired, but my goal in prayer today is that maybe we would see God as he is, that we would have a new vision of God, and that vision of God would transform every fiber of who we are. Because the famous uh, Christian Missionary Alliance writer, A.W. Tozer, put it this way, he said, what comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains entertains high or low thoughts about God. So today I want us to fix our eyes on the goodness of who God is. As the scripture says that we just read, to, that we would taste and see that the Lord is good. You know, when you go into a grocery store or Sam's Club, if they're offering samples, they offer those samples because they believe that they're good, that they taste good, right? If they, if they thought they tasted bad, they wouldn't be offering them as samples, and so they come up to you and they offer you one and they're basically saying, taste, see that this is good. And so today as we look at God's word, I want to hold up God's word and say, taste, see that God is good. And so my goal is that we would get a renewed vision of who God is as we look at this passage today and be satisfied in him. So this psalm clearly is about worship and about seeing God for who he is. And uh, when we read this passage, it might seem a little bit haphazard. It seems like 
David goes from kind of thought to thought and back again. And the reason that he does that is because this was a Hebrew acrostic poem, uh, which means that you know, each line started with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And so that's why you don't have like the formal structure that you might have in, in some other writings is because it, it's filled into that acrostic. But I think that he tells us a lot about worship in this passage. And there's three primary things I think he shows us about worship. And the first thing is the challenge or, or the calling. The calling of worship. And the calling is first perpetual praise. He says, I will bless the Lord at all times. That's how he starts the passage. I'll bless the Lord at all times. Notice there's no conditions on praising the Lord. There's no circumstantial conditions. Like, I'll praise the Lord if my bank account is full, if I get a raise. I'll praise the Lord when I'm in good health and, and, and I'm not experiencing any pain. So th there's no, like, circumstantial conditions. There's no subjective conditions. Like, I'll, I'll, I'll praise the Lord when I'm feeling it. Like, I'll praise the Lord when I get up and I'm having a great day, when my anxiety is at bay, then I'll praise the Lord. I'll praise the Lord when everything's going well, when I feel close to God. Uh, there's no geographical condition. It's like, I'll, I'll praise the Lord when I go to church, or I'll praise the Lord when I'm doing my quiet time. There's no conditions. He says, I will praise the Lord continually at all times. Now, for David, it tells us, there's a subscript in this passage, it tells us when he wrote this passage. It says in the, in the text that, he, uh, that it's when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. So when David is writing this, his life is not rosy. When David is writing this, he is on the run because Saul, this megalomaniac, is trying to put him to death. And so he's just been spared from the king of the Philistines, uh, who was known as Abimelech, um, and he was spared from that king, but he's still on the run, and he's probably writing this passage from a cave called Adullam. And so he's, it's not like his life is going that well. He's on the run. He's struggling just to survive, just to feed himself. He had to go into, uh, to, to eat the holy bread just prior to this. Things are not just going that well, and yet he still says, I will bless the Lord at all times. So there's no conditions, and that's the call that he calls us to perpetual praise, whether things are going good or whether things are going bad. And there's a second calling in this passage, and that is moving away from the mirror. The psalmist says, I will make my boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. It's quite interesting that you have boasting and humility together. Boasting and praise together together because the two don't usually go together it would be expected that those who are humble would be opposed to those who are boasting and yet this is a different type of boasting not an ordinary boasting because the boasting is speaking of boasting in the Lord the calling of the person who is to worship God is boasting in who God is looking outside of ourselves because when we're looking in the mirror we're not going to worship when we're focused on ourselves, we're not going to worship. We only worship when we look outside of ourselves to someone who is worthy of every ounce of our praise and adoration. You don't go and see something beautiful like whether it's the falls or the Grand Canyon or a beautiful beach. You don't go to those places and come home and say, wow, I had a wonderful hair day when I was there. Wow, I had that incredible outfit. No, you come back and you're like, 
wow, like this was incredible. Like it was so big and so massive. I've never seen anything like it because you're in awe of something outside of yourself. And as you see those things, it's like you feel small. You feel insignificant. Like your life almost doesn't matter. But there's a beauty in that. Because we know our lives do matter, and when we look to God, it's like, wow, he's that big and that powerful and that mighty and that beautiful, and yet he still cares about me. And so that's when we are able to worship, when we look outside of ourselves to praise him. It's the calling of John the Baptist who said, he must increase, I must decrease. And ironically, that's when we find joy. The psalmist says, oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name forever. The word for magnify literally means something like to make great. That's not to say that we can add to God's greatness. That's not to say that we're the ones who create his greatness. But we put him as great in our life. We acknowledge him as great. We put him in the place that he's meant to be in our lives. It's what it means to worship. John Piper insightfully puts it this way. He says there's two kinds of magnifying microscope magnifying and telescope magnifying. The one makes a small thing look bigger than it is. The other makes a big thing begin to look as big as it really is. When David says, I will magnify God with thanksgiving, he does not mean I will make a small God look bigger than he is. He means I will make a big God begin to look as big as he really is. We're not called to be microscopes, we're called to be telescopes. Christians are not called to be con men who magnify their product out of proportion to reality when they know their competitor's product is much superior. There is nothing and nobody superior to God, and so the calling of those who love God is to make his greatness begin to look as great as it really is. So that's the calling that Paul, that uh, David has in this passage. Perpetual praise to bless the Lord continually, whether things are going well or not so well, and to look outside of ourselves to acknowledge the greatness of who God is, not to make him great, but to make him great in our lives, to show the world how great he is, to put him in his rightful place. So that's the calling, perpetual praise and looking outside ourselves to one who is worthy of all honor, devotion, and praise. But then he also tells us the reasoning. Why do we do so? Something like that. Why do we praise him continually? Why do we look to him? And the reason that he gives us is because there's no one like our God. In the ancient world and in, in, in today's culture as well, when you think about other religions, nearly every religion has a being that's powerful, being that's mighty, uh, often a being that created the world or created some portion of the world. And so it's not unique to talk about God being great and mighty and holy and those kind of things. But I think what's kind of unique when it came to ancient culture and even today is that not only is God infinitely powerful, but God is also infinitely good. Not only is God transcendent and high and mighty, but he is also relatable. He's also near to us. And so there's other Psalms that talk about like God is so great and so mighty and he destroys his foes and all these things. He dwells on a holy hill, those kind of things. And and David isn't going to emphasize that in this passage. He's going to emphasize the fact that God is close to his people. And he tells us a few things about why we should praise God. He he first says, because God hears. He says, I sought the Lord and he answered me. I sought the Lord and he answered me. Not only does God dwell on his high and holy hill, but he hears our cry. 
No matter what we're experiencing in our life, no matter how big or how small it is, he hears us. He cares about us. I mean, think about that. Important people. Think about, you know, like the most important person in the world. Think about like the president of the United States or, the, you know, Elon Musk. You think about someone who has a lot of power. We couldn't call those people. We couldn't talk to those people. Their, their circle is kind of cut off from the common people. But God hears our cry. God hears us, you know, when it's midnight and we're just struggling with something that maybe to other people seems small and the scope of the world seems so small. And yet he wants to hear from us. And so we can praise God because he hears us. I sought the Lord and he answered me. The second thing that David praises God for is that God rescues he says, the poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. Notice what David says, this poor man cried. This is someone who had no status in society, had nothing to offer. He cried out to the Lord and the Lord answered him. And that's kind of who David was. I mean, he was a shepherd boy. He didn't have anything to present himself and God chose to make him a king, chose to use him to defeat Goliath. God rescued him from his foes. And so in this context, David is talking a lot about um, how he was delivered specifically from the hands of a Philistine king, but it sounds a lot like the story of the gospel as well, our story. Romans 5, 6 to 8 says, for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's the gospel. Poor men and poor women cry out to God and he answers and rescues us. That we were headed for an eternity, separated from him, and he came and rescued us. That he sacrificed himself for us so that we might have life. And this is really the biggest reason that we can praise God as believers because we have a new future. We have a new hope. The grave is not our end. Hell is not our future. We have a future with God forever. And so we praise him for his rescue. That while we were still sinners, he died for us. Tim, Kel Tim Keller talking about the Greek word for gospel, good news, um, euangelion, says that this word is translated good news or gospel, and it combines angelos, the word for one announcing news, and the prefix u, which means joyful. He says, gospel means news that brings joy. He said, this word had currency when Mark used it, but it wasn't religious currency. It meant history-making, life-shaping news, as opposed to just daily news. A gospel is an announcement of something that has happened in history, something that hasn't done for, something that's been done for you that changes your status forever. That's why we exist as believers, because of the gospel, because of what Jesus did, coming to the earth, living a sinless life, dying on the cross and rising again so that we might have life. And so we rejoice in him. We can praise him for that. Another reason that he praises God is because God provides. He says, the young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Why does David mention young lions in the context of not having what they need. He, he mentions long, young lions because young lions are kind of at the top of the food chain. They're young, they're agile, they are fierce, and you'd think if anyone would have what they need, you'd think it would be young lions when it comes to the animal world. 
But he says, even those young lions who have it all together, who have all of these things, sometimes they go hungry. And he says, and, and David says, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. They might not be strong, they might not be mighty, and yet they have what they need. What an incredible privilege it is to know that whatever you need for the moment, God is going to provide it. It doesn't mean that we always get what we want. Sometimes people get discouraged by this and think, well, you know, if I don't get what I want or don't get, you know, what I feel like I need in the moment, then God isn't coming through. But God isn't going to give us what we want always. He gives us what we need, what we need to serve him, what we need for the path that he has for us. And there's a physical component of that. Matthew 6.33, Jesus says, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And so if God is calling you to do something, he's going to provide what you need to do it. He's not going to call you to do something that you can't do, that he can't provide. As uh, one pastor once said, my pastor, Pastor Jerry from the chapel used to say, um, if it's God's will, it's God's bill. It's God's will, it's God's bill. If he's going to call you to do it, he's going to provide what you need. And so that provi- that's you know, a physical promise that God provides what we need, not necessarily what we want. Like, oh yeah, I want this, I want this big house, and I want this new car, and I want all these things. Like, maybe that's not God's plan for us. Maybe it is, maybe it's not. He's going to give you what you need for the plan he has for your life. But he's also going to give you the strength that you need as well. He provides the strength. It's not just physical. It's also a spiritual strength. Speaking of God, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 1, 8-9. Who will sustain you to the end? Speaking of God, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. God will give us the strength to do what he wants us to do. There's nothing he's going to call us to do that he's not going to give us the strength to do. I mean, sometimes we think of things in our life that seem like terrifying things. Like, what if God calls me to do this? What if he calls me to go to a foreign country? What if God calls me to uh, give this incredible amount? What if God calls me to give up this certain sin? He's not going to call us to do something that he doesn't give us the strength to do. I mean, think about it. Think of David. When he was a shepherd boy, he's out with the sheep. Do you think it crossed his mind that, like, hey, like someday I'm going to go and defeat this ginormous human being with all this armor and, like, who's strong and mighty, the leader of legions of people? If someone was to say that to him while he was out in the field as a young boy, he probably would have laughed. He probably would have been terrified at the thought. Yeah, in that moment when he needed to face the giant, God gave him the courage that he needed. You think about Joshua. Look at the book of the, the beginning of the book of Joshua. What does God tell him again and again? Don't be afraid. Be strong. Be courageous. Because in, in himself, it seems like from all the repetition there that he was afraid. These Canaanites are in the land. They're strong. They're powerful. They're mighty. And yet God gives them the strength that he needs. You think about Gideon. Gideon was uh, hiding in a wine vat, threshing, uh, threshing grain, because he was afraid that the Midianites were going to come and take the grain. He's just terrified. There's no way this guy is going to be used to defeat the Midianites. And yet that's exactly what God does. 
God gives him the courage that he needs, and not only does he give him the courage to fight the Midianites, that he, you know, pairs down the men that he's going to fight with so that there's just a small contingent of people that's going to fight against these powerful Midianites. God gives him the strength that he needs. And again, we, we question sometimes, maybe our lives, sometimes we have feelings of anxiety or fear. It's like, what if this happens? Like, what if I lose my job? Well, what am I going to do? Or like, what if I get this, you know, really debilitating illness? Or what if this illness leads to something else? Or, you know, what if uh, my loved one is sick? Or, you know, with everything happening in the world, like what if, you know, World War III happens? Like, we can, we can go down these rabbit trails. And we can worry about these things, but one thing I know and I think is true in God's, in the scripture, is that no matter what God calls you to, he's going to give you what he needs, what you need. doesn't matter what he calls you to. If you lose your job, he's going to give you the strength to get through it. If you come down with a debilitating illness, he's going to give you the strength that you need. And maybe you look at it from the outside, it's like, I could never deal with that. And maybe right now you couldn't. But in that moment, if that's God's path for you, he's going to give you the strength that you need. He's going to give you the strength that you need for every moment of every day as you follow him. And so David praises the Lord because God provides for his people. He gives us what we need. And he says, oh, fear the Lord, you saints, for those who fear him have no lack. Finally, he praises the Lord because God protects. He says, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. And delivers them. God protects his people. He will not allow eternal harm to fall upon us. He will not allow anything in our lives that's not for our good and for his glory. John 10, 28 to 29, Jesus says this, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. Praise the Lord that our destiny is not determined by our adversaries. Our destiny is determined by our king. That we can have confidence that the enemy will not be victorious over us because God protects his people. So we see in this passage the calling to perpetual praise, to bless the Lord at all times, to look outside of ourselves to someone who is worthy of all of our praise and honor and devotion. And we see reasons to bless the Lord, reasons to praise him because of what he's done for us, because he hears us, because he rescues, because he provides, because he protects. But the psalmist also tells us a couple challenges to worship. The first challenge to worship is sin. He says, turn away from evil and do good. And here's the challenge of sin as it pertains to worship Either your worship will kill your sin, or your sin will kill your worship. Either your worship will kill your sin, or your sin will kill your worship. That is, either your vision of God and His holiness will be so great that, you know, in, that, in the presence of God, you don't want to have your sin anymore. You realize, like, the way that I've been going is wrong, and I need to turn and do things God's way. Or the opposite, your sin will lessen our vision of God and His holiness. Let's say that you're going to a doctor, and you've never been to the doctor before, but the doctor is really highly recommended, and you just go there for an annual checkup. You don't have anything, you know, going wrong that you know of. You feel pretty, pretty good, but you go to the doctor for a checkup, and the doctor does an exam, and, and he says, well, 
I've got good news, I've got bad news. The bad news is you have this really terrible disease that you don't know about, but the good news is there's a cure. And all you have to do is take these pills three times a day for the next six months, and you're going to be just fine. But if you don't do it, it it's not going to turn out well. Now, let's say you, you leave that place, you have the medicine, and you don't take the medicine. A couple weeks go by, you don't take the medicine. Now, there's a couple of reasons why you might take it, and there's a couple of ways you might go forward. On the one hand, you might say, well, I'm not going to take it because, uh, after all, like, I feel fine. I mean, the doctor doesn't know what he's talking about. Like, I, I went there just for this exam, and like, I don't ha I, I'm not seriously sick. I feel fine. I run. I exercise. I eat healthy. Like, this doctor, he's crazy. He doesn't know what he's talking about. And, and so your choice could make you think less of that doctor. Like, he doesn't know what he's talking about. Or, on the other hand, you could think, well, I do feel fine. I exercise. I eat healthy. But, wow, that doctor, he really knows what he's doing. Because even when I told him everything was fine... He realized, like, there's something wrong, and I better take this medicine because he knows what he's talking about. And so that, that action can either cause you to greaten or make your view of this doctor greater or lessen it, depending on how you act. And the same thing is true in regard to our sin. If we hold on to sin, it means that we're lessening our view of who God is. Because what are we doing when we're doing things our own way? We're saying, okay, God is great but he doesn't really know what's best. That's lessening our view of who God is. He's a great God who doesn't know as, as good as what I know. And so we can't truly praise God if we're holding on to our sin. And sin also, it can be like glasses that we have on that, that kind of distort our vision of who God is. We can't truly see who God is when we're holding on and, and focused on our sin. And so when we are focused on our sin, we can lose fellowship with God, and it can hinder our worship. And so again, the importance of repentance comes up again. As we repent, we turn from a direction we're going and turn to Christ. We can see him as he truly is. Another kind of challenge to worship is trials. He says, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them. I think this is probably the biggest challenge for those of us who are believers. Trials. Things happen in our lives that don't make any sense to us. And it's like, it's easy to praise God when things are going well. Like when you have good health, you have a great job, you have a great family. When you're on the top of the world, it's easy to say, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. He's so good, he's so mighty. But what about when things are falling apart? What about when things don't seem to make sense? What about when you've been doing the right things, but the result is not as you hoped it would be? It's hard to praise God. It's hard to praise God in the midst of trials. But the scriptures, David and, and other passages of scriptures also remind us that many are the afflictions of the righteous. We are promised suffering in this life, in this fallen world that we live on. Something we should expect. And sometimes we don't see the full picture. We don't see how it fits in to the story that God is writing. My son loves puzzles. And um, 
even at his age, he's probably better at puzzles than I am. And so I'll take, sometimes I'll take a puzzle piece and look at the puzzle and I'll be like, at, at an individual piece, and I'll be like, okay, is this like a donkey's tail? Is this like uh, an, part of an elephant? Is this a rock? Like, have no idea what it is. And then he'll take it and he'll be like, oh yeah, it goes right here. Now imagine if I was to take a piece of a puzzle, I was to hold it up here, and say, okay, look at this, isn't this a great picture? He'd be like, well, I, I don't even know what it is. Like, it's like colors and shapes and lines, like, I, I don't know what it is. But if you saw the picture, saw all the puzzle pieces, it would make sense to you. And I think the same thing is true in life. There's individual things that happen to us that we look at them and it's like, where does this fit in? It doesn't even seem like it fits into any story. But, you know, when you're doing a puzzle, you see that picture and, and that's what guides you. In life, we don't see that picture. We don't get to see that picture to the end. We see the puzzle piece. So we look at that puzzle piece and it's like, this doesn't make sense. And God has the picture. It's like, yeah, it doesn't make sense by itself, but I'm putting the pieces together. And one day, whether it's in this life or in heaven, you're going to see that even in the midst of darkness, I was writing my story. I was writing something beautiful. And so we can praise him even when it doesn't make sense to us. Even when we don't understand that little picture that God is writing in our life. We serve a great and mighty God, a God who's worthy of all of our praise, honor, and adoration. We serve a God who's worthy of praise every moment of our lives. As we look outside of ourselves to him who died for us, the God who rescues, the God who is holy but hears us, transcendent but relatable, the God who provides everything that we need to do what he's called us to do. The God who puts a hedge of protection around us, who promises that there's nothing in our lives that he won't use for our good, for his glory. And so we can praise him. And I believe that worship is the primary calling of our life. As we see the greatness of who God is, as we look to the centerpiece of his work in the cross, it ought to transform us. It ought to change every fiber of who we are. It's not by looking inside of ourselves and telling ourselves we have the strength. It's by looking outside ourselves to Calvary and seeing the one who hung on the cross to do what we could never do. That's where we find our strength. That's where we're changed. David says this, those who look to the Lord, to him are radiant and their faces are never put to shame. Those who look to him are radiant. You ever been doing a craft with a child, maybe your kids or grandkids, and that craft involved glitter. I don't recommend this. It doesn't matter how careful you are. It doesn't matter how much you clean up. There's going to be glitter everywhere, probably in places that you don't even see it. I remember a couple months ago, uh, my son went to grandma's house, and uh, he came, came home, and he had glitter all over his face. I'm like, well, I don't know what craft was done, but some, something has happened here. And I remember for like days, literally days, after like two or three showers, I would look, think everything was gone, then I'd look and see this 
piece of you know, glitter on his face. It's like, how is that still there after all of these showers? But I remember just seeing it for the first time. I'm like, okay, something has happened there. Like, he's been doing something with glitter. And I think when we meet with God, there's something different about us. Our faces are radiant. People might not know, like, what it is, like, what's different about them. But we can't help but be in the presence of God and be changed. We can't help but be in the presence of God and have that affect our lives. And make us shine to those around us. The world might not know, but we know. It's because we've seen the glory of the Lord. We've seen his goodness. We know that he's heard our cries. We know that he's rescued us. We know that as we're walking down that path of following him, he's going to provide. And we know that every step of the way, he has his hedge of protection around us. And he's going to protect us. I'll bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name forever. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces should never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear, fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you are a God who is high and lifted up, but also a God who cares enough to hear us, who cares enough to die on the cross for us, who cares enough to provide for us as we follow you, who cares enough to protect us. Lord, help us to get a vision of who you are. Lord, each and every day, help us to never lose the wonder of a relationship with you. Help us to never move beyond your incredible love for us. Help us to never move beyond the grace that you've shown us in, in Jesus. And as we meet with you, as we see your face, may our faces be radiant as we reflect your glory to those around us and spread your presence to everyone that we know. In Christ's name I pray, amen.